This message is brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about our ministries, we encourage you to visit us online at tabernaclehickory.org. That's tabernaclehickory.org. You can find our sermons on a number of platforms, including Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. We trust that God will use this message to speak to your heart. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to leave it to you this evening to do most of the work on your own as far as studying out some of the background that's leading into this particular passage that we're going to study together. We're going to start reading in verse number 9, but there's quite a story to be told for how um, uh, verse number 9 comes to be. Paul and his missionary team are endeavoring to find where it is that the Lord would have them to minister. They've tried a few different places, and in each of those places, the Holy Spirit has said no. And then where we pick up in verse number 9, we find Paul and Timothy and Silas and now Luke waiting in the city of Troas, a seaport city. They've made themselves available to go wherever it is that the Lord would want them to go, to do whatever it is that the Lord would want them to do, and they are just simply awaiting for the Lord's direction. And where we pick up in verse number 9 is, is a famous passage, infamous passage about the Macedonian call. And then what I'd like for us to do is study specifically about uh, church planning, God's view of starting churches, establishing churches, and what His purpose is for that, even here at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory. Let's read together beginning at verse number 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. We were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful for every opportunity that we have to study it together, to hear the message that you have put in the pages before us, a message and a truth that will last for all of eternity, for forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have established it for our good and for our benefit and for your glory. We ask for your help this evening, Lord, as we look at your heart for the church, its mission, what it is that you desire, not just for our new church in Cornelius, but also for this church here in Hickory. Bless your word now. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The point of the entire chapter of Acts 16 
centers on the narrative of the start of the church at Philippi. Now, you may be very familiar with this particular church. Obviously, later on in the New Testament, you read a letter that Paul had specifically written back to this church after this time, a letter of, of joy. There's no real occasion of correction in that letter. It was a good church, and this is its beginnings. This is when God had touched the heart of Paul and his team to establish this church and to see what it was that uh, he could do in the hearts of the people here in this city. And as you study throughout the chapter, you'll find it broken up into three different narratives. One narrative is the one that we just read. It's about uh, a lady that we're going to study her life and her conversion specifically tonight named Lydia. Paul and his team find their way to a group of women who are uh, awaiting uh, uh, some teaching, but are gathered for the purpose of prayer on the outside of the city here. And Paul preaches the gospel to them, and Lydia gets saved, and also uh, some other people. And the Lord begins this work here in the city. The second narrative begins just after it, as Paul and his team are going about the city in the next few days. They're preaching the gospel in the city. We find that there's a slave girl who's possessed by a demon who's being controlled uh, by her slave owners for monetary gain. And she's following them around the city and she's yelling out everywhere that they go. You can read it there in the passage that these are messengers from the Most High God, that they are declaring the way of salvation. What she said was true. But as we understand the scriptures and even study the life of Christ, God's not interested in his truth being propagated by the evil one and by the wicked one. And after a while, Paul gets annoyed and he turns to this lady, he cast out the demon through the power of God in his life, and presumably uh, this young girl is saved in the process. They didn't make her slave owners very happy. They had just lost uh, their means of wealth, and they immediately dragged Paul and Silas to the city square where all of the business was taking place. They brought them before the two magistrates of Philippi. They stripped them naked. They beat them nearly to death all for preaching the gospel to this lady and for the Lord changing her life. And as you know the story, they're cast into the innermost part of the prison. And at midnight, just as we would be in a place, or at least I would be in a place of complaint, a place of discouragement, we see Paul and Silas lift up their voices on what could have been, in their minds, the last night of their life, and they lift up their voices and they sing praises to the Lord. And at midnight, the Lord sends an earthquake. The gates of the prison are open. Then the prisoners leave and immediately the prison guard runs in. And as you know the story, he says, what must I do to be saved? And he is then converted. All throughout these three narratives in Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and his team in completely different circumstances. When it's with the women on the side of the riverbank, it's a very comfortable situation. They wanted him there. They wanted to hear his teaching, and they accepted his teaching there. When it's going around the city, it's a little bit of a discomfortable situation with the slave girl. And then especially as they get into the prison, it's the worst of the worst that you can imagine. But despite their circumstances, despite the circumstances that they found themselves in in each one of these narratives, the consistency is God's purpose. And God's purpose, as we read it in Acts chapter 16, is very simple. It's the salvation of lost souls. Despite the changing circumstances of Paul and his team, one thing was consistent every time. The Lord used the faithful preaching of the gospel, despite their circumstances, to reach lost people with the gospel. 
And so as we study Acts chapter 16, it becomes much larger than just a narrative about the start of a church. It's, it's much greater than just a story about the perseverance of Paul and his team in the face of uh, disappointment and in the face of danger and even death. It becomes a narrative that specifically communicates to us God's heart and his purpose for the church. It's a mission that not only Paul had in Philippi, but you have here in Hickory and that I have in Cornelius. It's a mission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone that we can to preach that gospel so that God can save sinners and he can then use those people to perpetuate his truth. That's the message of Acts chapter 16. That's the heart of the passage. And it's with that thought that I'd like for us to study just a few observations tonight. By the end, my goal is that we would see not only a great example of church planning and God's heart for the church, but that we would understand the priority of the church, the priority that it is about the gospel over programs, that we would see and be motivated by our command to personal evangelism as we take the gospel to those that are around us, and then that we would be encouraged to involve ourselves in the work of the church and in the work of this church here. Three very simple things. If you're keeping notes, write this down. Paul's team faithfully preached the gospel. They faithfully preached the gospel. Look with me again at verse number 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. What strikes me here is the simplicity of what Paul and his team did. It starts with them understanding their purpose and understanding their mission. We read about that in verse number 10. Would you look at that with me again? After he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to do what? Preach the gospel unto them. As they awaited God's call in Troas and God comes to uh, uh, Paul and gives him this vision of where he wanted him to go, they knew leaving Troas, our purpose, our mission is to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. And so when they got to Neapolis and made the 8 to 10 mile walk to the city of Philippi, they didn't sit there and try to come up with some elaborate scheme to build up some type of program or some type of church there in the city. They immediately found a group of people and they preach the gospel. Why was it so simple? Because the mission is very simple. Take the gospel and preach it to those that need to hear it. It's often insinuated that before we can reach the lost, that we must establish elaborate programs and construct attractive facilities, recruit skilled musicians, have the best programs that the town can offer, but only then can you truly reach people with the gospel. That's what we're led to believe. We're also led to believe that evangelism is only effective when we first establish intimate friendships and engage in the social work of the community. And I don't mean to negate those things. They're important. And they're useful as avenues to share the gospel. I only mean to say that all you need to reach people for Jesus Christ is to preach the gospel. Amen. 
The gospel is all that's necessary. And when it comes to your ministry here in Hickory, and when it comes to mine in Cornelius, our goal is not to have the best programs that we can possibly offer. Our goal is to preach the gospel. And if God gives us avenues through programs to do that, then praise the Lord. But our programs must not, or our programs must serve the purpose of the gospel, not the other way around. So many churches diminish the proclamation of the gospel in order that they may cater to their favorite method or program. And in the process of that, they lose sight of the gospel itself. They build their crowds, but then do nothing of value with the crowds that gather. And the point and the simplicity of what they did is that they just found people that preach the gospel. Somewhere along the way in American Christianity and in our Christian culture, we have, we have fooled ourselves and deceived ourselves into thinking that something about this relies on us. It is not about us. There will always be a church with a better music program. And your music is fantastic. Holy cow, that choir was wonderful tonight. That was awesome. I love this song, that you, the choir special that you sang tonight when he reached down his hand for me. I hadn't heard that song in a long time, Pastor Hooks. What a great song. I heard a preacher say one time, a lost person without Jesus is not drowning in their sins. They're already drowned. And a person that's dead in their sins, according to Paul in the book of Colossians, it takes a living thing to revive that, not another dead thing. There's nothing in and of us that can possibly bring life to death. That can come through one person and one person alone, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not about what we can do. It's not about how we can persuade. It's about us being obedient to our mission, and our mission is to take the gospel to lost people and let God do his work on their life because he's the only one that can. Amen. It was simple. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church, that after in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks, they seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Amen. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But unto them which are called, those who are saved, it, both the Jews and the Greeks, it is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I understand some people that like to quote St. Francis of Assisi in his famous statement that always preach the gospel, use words if necessary. I understand what they're getting on about with that. But we must remind ourselves that the Bible clearly says, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The way you live your life is important. The methods that you use are important. But they're all to serve the purpose of the gospel, not the other way around. So they faithfully preached the gospel, and their strategy was simple. Quickly, I, I noticed as they preached the gospel that their audience was unique. Look with me again at verse 13. We sat down, and we spake unto the women which resorted thither. What's interesting about where Paul and his team found themselves on this particular day is the fact that just like Jesus, it was often Paul's custom as he goes to a new city to first teach the gospel in the local synagogue. We find him on the riverbanks of a city because Philippi had no synagogue. Remember, in Acts chapter 16, this is a monumental uh, uh, moment in the life of the early church. This is the first time ever in history that the gospel of Jesus Christ made its way to the continent of Europe. Judaism was not prevalent there. And the Jewish tradition says that there had to have at least been 10 male heads of households 
as a quorum in order to establish a synagogue in any particular city. And if there wasn't enough uh, male heads of households to do that, the faithful there were to gather on the Sabbath day underneath the open sky by a river or sea, and they were to spend time in a prayer meeting of sorts. So Paul and his team, when they get to Philippi, there's no synagogue. They go to the outside of the city, they go to the riverside, and they find a group of women there. Here's why this is significant to me. It tells me clearly that the gospel is for all people. Here's why. John MacArthur said this, it's significant that the first people Paul preached to in Europe were women. He's often caricatured as a male chauvinist by those who reject his teaching on the role of women, but he was not prejudiced as his eagerness to speak to this group shows. Paul's attitude was in sharp contrast to that of his fellow Pharisees. They would not deign to teach a woman. And regularly in their rote prayers, that is their written out prayers that they would recite day by day, they thanked God that they were not Gentiles, that they were not slaves, and that they were not women. It also ran counter to the Greco-Roman society that they found themselves living in in this particular day and age. The fact that Paul goes to the outside of the city and he finds a group of Jews, it didn't matter to him that it was a group of women, a group that all the other rabbis that he was buddies with would have rejected. It didn't matter that all of the other leaders in the city would have rejected to teach this particular group of people. It didn't matter that they were women. It wouldn't have mattered if they were Greek. It wouldn't have mattered what the color of their skin was. It wouldn't have mattered what their status was. All he was doing was faithfully loving people by preaching the gospel to them. And it's a reminder to us that there's no one that we should exclude from preaching the gospel to. No one. We have a habit sometimes as Christians to look at a passage like Romans chapter 1 that talks about God taking some people in their sins and turning them over to a reprobate mind. We have a habit sometimes as believers as choosing who we think God has or should turn over to a reprobate mind. And we run into that person who just on the outside we can tell their lifestyle, the way that they live, is antithetical to everything that you are and everything that you believe. And if we're not careful... We won't give them a gospel track. We won't share the gospel with them. Because we might reason in our minds, they've probably already been turned over. Or I don't like that person's skin color. And I don't like the family that that person belongs to. So I'm going to let somebody else share the gospel with them. And clearly here, we're seeing, we see, that the gospel is for all nations and all tribes, and all tongues. And we need to take the gospel with everybody we can. So we see that they faithfully preach the gospel. Quickly, number two, if you're keeping up with notes, just write this down simply, God saves Lydia. He saved Lydia. Look at verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. We're introducing this verse to a woman named Lydia. We're told she's from Thyatira. We're told that she is a seller of purple. Now, purple dyes were prohibitively expensive. We see other portions of Scripture, actually, that would use purple garments and purple dyes as a way to describe the wealthy in Jesus' day. In fact, if you study Luke chapter 16, you know the story well of Lazarus, the beggar that sat up and, and begged for the crumbs from the rich man's table. One of the descriptions that Jesus uses in that story of the rich man is that he was clothed in purple raiment. And so Lydia has been a successful businesswoman. 
She's obviously living in Philippi. She doesn't live in Thyatira anymore. It's likely that her roots were pagan, but at some point along the way, she'd been introduced to the Hebrew teaching of God, and she had found some type of value in that and had converted to Judaism in, a, in some sort. And so what we find in Lydia is a person that most of us would look at and say, if we were going to choose a person in this group of ladies that was probably a believer, that God would accept, we would say, it would be Lydia. We find out later at the end of chapter 16 that it was Lydia's home that likely became the headquarters for the church. That when Paul and Silas finally get out of the prison, when they're let go, they go to Lydia's house and they meet the brethren there and they worship with the brethren there. So she had a house that was big enough to hold a church. She was hospitable enough to take care of the missionaries that were in town starting this particular church. And so she was a woman of great wealth. She was also a woman that was very religious. Did you catch that in verse 14? Prior to her conversion, she's labeled as a person that worshiped God. Yet despite her wealth and despite her status and despite her religious worship of God, she still was in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which tells me something very specific. That your status and your wealth and your involvement in this church is worthless when it comes to your salvation. When we come to Christ at salvation, we come literally empty-handed. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's no amount of goodness. There's no amount of productivity. There's no amount of giving. There's no amount of history and family history in the church, even a good Baptist church. There's no, nothing religious that you can possibly bring to the table where God would look at your life and say, you know what? Everyone else, I'm requiring repentance. Everyone else, I'm requiring faith. But you did such a good job, I'm going to give you a pass. That will not happen in eternity. It won't happen. Think about it logically. How could the God that created all that is, that owns all that is, that is the provider of all that is, possibly be bribed by our will? You can't buy your way into heaven. How could it be possible for the God who by the very uh, act of our sin is separated from us for eternity, all of a sudden look at your life and say, well, you are a little bit better than everyone else, so I'm going to give you a pass. It just doesn't make sense. And so I want to tell you tonight that it doesn't matter how involved you've been at Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory. It doesn't matter how long you've been here and how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't really matter how much of this book you understand and know. Even the devils believe and tremble. What matters is have you come to that place in your life empty-handed, acknowledging that unless God divinely intervened in your life with his grace, you would be utterly hopeless for the rest of eternity. And in that moment, turn away from the fact that you are religious and the fact of your wealth and the fact of your goodness and anything else that you would trust. And in that moment, cast yourself on the grace of God. And the wonderful part of the gospel is that when we do that, despite our background, despite our sin, no matter how hard you've rejected the gospel in your life, despite who we are, God's grace is so great that it swallows up every sin that we have. It swallows up every deed that we've done. It swallows up everything about us that would go against him and that would reject his gospel, that would reject his truth. Where sin was great, grace is greater. 
and he swallows it all up in the forgiveness that he displays to us, the grace that he shows. Remember what the scriptures say about salvation. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Or how about in Galatians that we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So as we're studying the start of this church in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul just faithfully preached the gospel. His strategy was simple. It's the same mission we have as believers now. And when he preached the gospel, God did this thing. It's really kind of unique. He saved people. And then watch what he does finally. Number three, write this down. God used Lydia to help establish the church. He used Lydia to help establish the church. Look with me at verse 15. When she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Two quick things jump out to me here. One, her testimony led others to Christ. We don't know whether or not her household were other women that was gathered on the side of the sea that particular day or on the side of the river. Could have been. It could have been that when she got home that day, she was so overwhelmed by God's grace in her life that she began to demonstrate that and share that with those in her house, those who served in her house, perhaps the family that she had there. All we know is that as a result of Lydia's conversion, that when it came time to be baptized, to publicly profess Christ, it wasn't just her being baptized. It was others that were coming along with her. Which tells us she probably had something to do with that. Just her testimony led others to Christ. But then what I also notice is that she passionately served the Lord. She passionately served the Lord. Look again at verse 15. After she was baptized, she besought us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Besought means to beg. She uh, begged them to do this thing that she's asking here in verse 15. And then the fact of uh, constraint, it gives the picture of physical uh, uh, pulling. It's as if Lydia is so excited to serve the Lord. It's as if she's so excited to be a part of this gospel work in Philippi that she's literally grabbing Paul and Silas by the arm saying, please stay in my house. Headquarter this whole thing in my house. I want to be a part of it. I want to hear more. I want to learn more. I want to be a part of the grace that God is using in your life. Amen. She constrained them. What was a religious woman that had it all together that probably thought when she went to the riverside that day that everything was good to go for her eternity was enamored by the person of Jesus Christ and he radically changes her life. And that exploded in an inferno of fiery of passion for the Lord and for his church. It's a passion that so often accompanies the newly converted, but so quickly wears off sometimes on those of us that trudge along in the difficulties of our Christian life. I wonder when's the last time that you were so passionate, so passionate to serve gospel purposes for the Lord through your church that you found yourself going to Pastor Hooks or to anybody else for that matter and saying, please, let me be involved. What can I do? And I'm not talking about passing an offering plate. I'm talking about going out and telling people about Jesus. What can I do to further the gospel what can I do to be a part of what God is doing here? What can I do to be a part of God's gospel work across the world? Oftentimes, we're afraid to ask that question 
Because we already know the answer. Often we're afraid to pray that prayer because God's already worked on our hearts about what it is he wants us to do. And I've been there recently. I didn't want to start a church. My best friend in the whole world is a church planner. And I know how hard his life is and the sacrifices he's made. And my flesh didn't want to do that. I wanted to be involved in gospel work, but I wanted the hard stuff to be done already. The buildings and the people, you know, the salary, all the stuff, you know. But it's only at the point of coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, it doesn't matter. You've been so good to me. I just want to serve you any way that you want me to serve. And that's a difficult prayer to pray because we never know what it is that God might actually want. But I can tell you that it's a joyous life when you see the fruit of the gospel through your life and in the lives of the people that God allows you to reach. It's fruitful and it's joyous more than anything else that you thought you were holding on to for happiness or for joy in your life. As we conclude in this particular thought in this passage, we can't conclude our thoughts by being in awe of Paul and his ministry team, especially as we see the difficulties that they went through. It's important for us to recognize that and learn from it, but we can't conclude this passage being in awe of Paul. And we can't conclude this passage being in awe of Lydia and her passion and, and the service with which she followed the Lord. We can't do that either. This passage, as with any passage we turn to, we must end in awe of God. Here's why. We didn't read the first few verses of this chapter, but if you read them later when you get home, you'll notice that Paul and his team didn't want to go to Philippi. That wasn't their goal. They actually wanted to go to Asia Minor, and they make their way there, and the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit prevented them. You can read about that in verse number 6. They were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. We're not told what the obstacle is. We're just told that it was God's doing that they weren't able to go and do it. Maybe it was sickness. Maybe it was another obstacle. Maybe their passports didn't check out. We don't know. What we know is they gave God credit for that. God didn't let us go there. So turning from Asia Minor, they were decided in the busyness of their ministry, doing good things that they were going to go to Bithynia instead. And so they make their way to Bithynia, and God says no. So they find their way to the city of Troas. I told you, a seaport city. They could have gotten on a boat there and gone anywhere in the world that they wanted to go to serve the Lord. So they made themselves available to him. They made themselves available to go wherever it was that the Lord wanted to go. And one night, God says, go to Macedonia. And then the next day, immediately, they get on a boat and they go to Macedonia. They didn't want to go there. But God directed their steps there. The heart of man deviseth his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then we see this other character in the story, Lydia, who wasn't a native of Philippi. Her business had brought her there more than likely. She was a seller of purple. She had been successful. The Lord had blessed her career. She finds her way to Philippi somewhere in Philippi or in between Thyatira and Philippi. She's introduced to the Hebrew thought of God. She finds value in it. And so on this day, she finds herself, maybe as any other Sabbath day, gathered with these women in a prayer meeting on the side of the river, unknowing of anything of Jesus Christ. 
And then on this particular day, God directs the steps of Paul and his team to this riverbank. And God directs the steps of Lydia to this riverbank. And then all of a sudden, God does this wonderful gospel work where he changes radically her life. And then he continues to sanctify Paul and his team through their ministry. And we stand on the backside of this and we look back and we don't say, what a great missionary or what a great Christian. We say, what a great God. That in his sovereign providence, in his grace, that he would direct the steps of a loving missionary and of a seeking soul to this place. And in that, and in that way, and in that sovereignty, he would bring these people together in order that he might save Lydia's soul. What a God. And I invite you to think back to your conversion. Think back on all of those steps, maybe years before that God began to set in place in your life that your heart was devising your way, but the Lord was directing your steps. And he brought you to that divine appointment on that day to hear the gospel. And he worked in your heart like he did in Lydia's. The Lord opened her heart that she believed the things that Paul had spoken. And on that day, the Lord opened your heart and you believed the things. What a God that is. What a grace that he would love us that he would forgive us, and that he would save us. And then beyond that, that he would take those of us who are weak and frail and sinful and continue to struggle and can't seem to get our own lives together, and then he would decide that it's us that he would like to use to do this for other people. Paul's a murderer. Yet God radically changed his life. I don't know your background, but I can tell you it's probably just as bad as Paul. Maybe a different sin, but sin will send you to hell no matter what degree it is humanly perceived. Yeah, God radically changed your life. Now use that grace to reach other people in Hickory and in Cornelius and in the regions beyond. Thank you for listening to this message from Tabernacle Baptist Church. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to your heart today. If you'd like to learn more about the ministries of Tabernacle Baptist Church, you can go to our website, tabernaclehickory.org. That is tabernaclehickory.org. There you'll find additional resources that we pray God will use to be a help to you. If the Lord should lead you to partner with us or make a donation online, you'll find a link provided on the website at tabernaclehickory.org. May God bless you and thank you for listening.